you've got a Bible, could you please turn to, to 1 Peter uh, chapter 4. We're going to read verses 7 uh, to 11. We're uh, on a series running through uh, 1 Peter. Uh, we come to the end, we're going to go back to the Psalms again uh, and look at some of the, uh, the middle sections of the Psalms. Um, it's actually good to be uh, back this Sunday. I missed you last week. Uh, although it was a, a great time in Whitchurch, we were praying for Jamie Muir and Ken Holland uh, to be uh, made elders, if that's what you call it. I don't know. Uh, we were doing that last Sunday. I actually missed you. I know that you didn't miss me, but I missed you. And it was interesting that I did learn about the sins that you committed whilst, uh, whilst I was away, and we'll be dealing them in a future sermon. It's, just, it's no good laughing, Chris. I know about yours. So, uh, so if you've got a Bible, can you please turn 1 Peter 4, uh, 7 to uh, 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength of God, uh, supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion uh, forever and ever. Amen. Uh, I'm aware that next week uh, that Rupert actually is going to speak on the subject of suffering, which will flock out thousands uh, to hear the subject. And uh, I actually don't want to uh, steal his thunder. But having said that, I just need to give you a little bit of context uh, to the verses that we've read. Because the context actually is suffering. <sighs> so if you look at verse 1, 1 Peter, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, you find that the centerpiece of our armour, who is Jesus, the creator of the universe, The Bible says the sustainer of all things, the saviour of the world, the perfectly innocent one, the son of God, chose suffering as his vocation. And he calls us, doesn't he? And he says, I want you to take up your cross and follow, follow me. And so we find real and everlasting life. We find that. Uh, we find it in the sense of uh, suffering with him. And uh, Peter tells us later on in that passage, before we get to verse 7, he tells us to choose suffering for a reason. And he says that if you choose it, you won't sin so much. But he says, if you don't choose it, you will sin. And, uh, but he also goes on and he says, but... What you do in choosing suffering is that you prove that your bondage to sin has been broken. And we need to sometimes get the thoughts and the purpose in our head that Jesus is actually worth suffering for. 
Sometimes in our mind's eye, we think, no, this is a bit difficult. No, whatever you're suffering, Jesus is worth suffering. It's best that we, we write that down now. We agree it. We amen it. And just sort of say, no, I'm going to be one of these guys that says, this actually is worth suffering for. You see, when you suffer for what is right, it actually is, according to Peter, a sign that you have renounced sinful desires And you've embraced the love of God as a higher value. This is more important than this. What you do when you you struggle with the issue of suffering is you say, suffering and what I'm going through is more important than Jesus. That's what you do. And what we're saying is, settle it in your heart. Jesus is more important than suffering. Now that sounds tough, doesn't it? And the answer is, The the answer to that is, yes, it is tough. But if you don't settle it in your heart, then what will happen is that your faith will not be robust enough when you do suffer. And also, the church will not be where you are found. Because as soon as you do suffer, those two things will go crumbling down. So let's move on. Eventually then we get to verse 7. And we are told that we are in the end of all things. And therefore, because we are in the end of all times, people, we need to understand that the end, one of the time, one of the, the signs, as it were, of the end times is that we will suffer. And again, as people living in the end times, therefore we will suffer. And what I want to try and do uh, this morning is try and explain, uh, I hope, uh, by what Peter calls the end of all, uh, all things is at hand in verse 7. And that does mean handling the old red herring of the end times. And who knows what will happen at the end of this. I could be having a cup of coffee on my own. uh, Because if there's any subject that gets Christians going, it's either creation or the end times. So I noticed that Phil didn't get it and Steve didn't get it and Rupert got it. And I'm just thinking here, I'm better off with suffering than I am with the end times. So... What I want to do is try and answer that, uh, run, get in the car and leave. But actually, right at the very end, I'd like to just, just share something with you in regard to what I believe that God spoke to me personally from in the passage. So they, they, are, my, they are my final application points, one of which uh, emotionally got to me, I have to say, and the others which I just felt, ah, this is something for us as a church. So the, the end application I would like to suggest to you is more than biblical application. It has a prophetic edge to it. So let's begin uh, in, uh, in verse 7. Peter starts the paragraph, the end of all things is at hand. Now what does he mean here? Was he claiming to know and to teach that Jesus would come back in a few uh, months or years, that the end of the age uh, and the establishment of the kingdom was something that that we're on the verge of here? Or was he teaching that Jesus would come back any moment? That sort of just as Jesus went, Jesus would come back uh, any moment and that was what people should be uh, ready for, that they should be sort of almost anticipation, uh, anticipation that they, you know, they open the door and I know there's Jesus. Was that what he was saying? And, uh, uh, you know, with a sense of imminence. Or was there a third possibility 
in regard to this. And it is this, that interpreters in, in the scriptures have sometimes concluded that the apostles made a mistake when they said these things. It's sort of, it's sort of like an evening with Phil Harmon when he gets excited. I don't know whether you've seen Phil Harmon get excited, but when Phil Harmon gets excited, you get it all. You get the tears and the laughter, and the, he's going ten to the dozen, and you just might as well sit there as Phil implodes and explodes with something that, he's, that has caught his faith. And that basically is what was going on here, that the disciples and Peter was Phil Harmoned. That was what was happened. See, because, the, because, because the, they knew, you know, Jesus knew all things, that is the phrase that you'll find the commentators explain this. But basically, the argument goes like this. They made a mistake. They got overexcited uh, because they had seen Jesus go. Their expectation was that he would come, that he would come back. And uh, we know the reality of that is that he hasn't come back yet. So that was, that's the third explanation in regard to this, that they just got overexcited. So let's try and work that one out. But for those of us that have actually come to love Scripture and come to submit our lives to it, which I hope that you have, and believe that God did not allow the apostles to make mistakes or teach the church errors, this is not so easy then, is it? Because there must be another reason for what was being said. Look at it this way. Uh, what in Peter, uh, you was there in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, when the apostles asked Jesus, if now is the end of the, of the time, if, if this is the time when the kingdom would be established. Do you remember that question? He said, Lord, uh, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you do it at this time? And Peter heard Jesus say, say to him, I love this. It just, I just think this is fantastic. This is one of those mind your own business things. Do you remember that one? He says this, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the father has fixed in his own authority. Peter, mind your own business. It's just a lovely one. I mean, we read it and we, somebody brings it in the context of worship. Uh, you, you can't imagine sort of somebody prophesying, mind your own business. But that actually is what was being said. Why was that an issue at that time? Really, because Jesus had told Peter what his business was. And it is really interesting in regard to the end times and our business. Because here are we, decades from Peter, and we're asking the same question as the church. And people are sort of saying, well, what is going on here? Um, And I think the same question should be addressed to us as a church. Church, mind your own business. Do exactly what I've asked you to do and let me worry about the things that I have to worry about. So what had Peter been asked to do? He'd been asked to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the business of an end times church. This is what we're about. An end times church is not worrying about, well, how's this going to work then? An end times church, defined biblically, is that we go to Jumeir and all that lot. (laughs) The trouble is with the church is that that is not good enough for them. Because we are just plain disobedient sometimes. And what happens is that we go this, well, how long have I got to do that for then? Which is what happens, doesn't it? We just sort of do that and sort of... 
and I think the answer is that, you know, it's a good job that Peter did. He'd have got a slap for that one, wouldn't he, really? So, you know, if you ask that question, ask the person next to you to just give you a healthy slap. You didn't. Okay, let's move on then. I... So what was Peter teaching about the end of all things in verse 7? The clue, I think, and I hope that I'm sure about it, is found in the emphasis on prayer. He says this, he says, Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, do you see that beforehand, Peter had been told, this is not your business, this is your business. So here's Peter learning that lesson. It's interesting, isn't it? Do you learn the lesson like Peter learns them? Are you a teachable person? Or, or is God dealing with you? with exactly the same things that he was dealing with some years ago. Are you facing the same issues? Here's Peter, some years later, now having learned the lesson, because when he's talking about the end times, he says, Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And as all good theologians say, the key is in the therefore. And Peter connects the nearness of the end with the need for prayer. He seems to be saying, don't worry your little hearts about the specifics. This, if we're in the end times, then what we should be doing is praying together. It's almost a replication of this. Don't worry about that, but do this. That's what you should be doing. If you like, we already know that end times people should be going to, to Jerusalem and to Judea and to Samaria to the end of the earth. Now Peter says, not only that, you should be as end time people praying together. Let me just take you back uh, to Jesus, who actually did the same thing. And they, the, one of the passages that we have to deal with in regard to the end times is Luke chapter 21. And I'm going to go through that in a little bit later. If you, if, you to, if you look at it in Luke chapter 21, verse 36, he says, he points to the same thing. He says, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place, to stand before the Son of Man. Stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape these things that are going to take place. Now, the point of escape is not that, G- that Christians be taken out of the world and not pass through the trouble that Jesus is predicting. You don't need strength for that, do you? <laughs> if you're going to avoid it, you don't need strength. Uh, but he prays for strength, that they would be strong so as not to be spiritually and morally ruined by end-time pressures and stresses. Two verses earlier, verse 34, Luke 21, he calls the coming end a trap. It's an interesting word, isn't it? Oh, I don't know whether you've worked that out yet, that actually you are living in times that the Bible calls a trap for those who are weighed down with the dissipation, that's overindulgence, and drunkenness and worries of life. That's what we need to escape from, the trap of worldliness as the end draws near. So what do Jesus and Peter have in common? They have in common that they see that what defines end times people is the issue of prayer. 
that as the end draws near, that must mean that we pray together more and more. It's something that defines us. It's time to pray together. We're in the end times. Pray together as a church. And praying together is important because it defines us out as end times people. How do we know that we are people that are looking forward to the return of Christ, the new heaven, the new earth, the creation of all things? The Bible tells us that we define that by our praying. That we, we are a people who are urgent to gather together and pray because we're living in the end times. And it's really interesting that if you ask somebody and just went up to them and sort of said, you know, are you living in the end times? They go, oh, yes. He says, are you praying? No, not very much. Actually, they don't go together. That if you are an end time people, we pray. We pray. Peter was there with it. Jesus was there with it. Praying marks us out. So I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. Please, church, come with me and pray. Please do that. Actually, what you hear this, don't hear this as, as, as a condemnation, but hear this. By the lack of our praying, we imply that we don't think that Jesus is returning. By our praying, we actually say... Now, I know what you'll say to me, but the prayer meetings are on this night and that. That isn't the issue. The issue is we're praying because we are end times people. We're preparing our hearts for the end times. So let's stay in Luke 21 for context for a little while because it does uh, help us. What does Jesus say? Well, about the end of the age. Well, it is quite interesting because there is a fascination with the end times. Uh, I realised that I just got all sorts of books on the end times and uh, some of them quite strange. Uh, And uh, quite frightening, actually. I don't know whether you remember this. I don't know what the film was there. But when I was little and going to church, I was taken to see a film and it was, it was like a cine film thing. And we went after church. It was all to do with the end times. And in it, there were a scene of people that just went missing. So there was a scene of it. And there's, I remember there's a bloke cutting his lawn like that. And then it flashed back and the lawnmower was going like this. And there were other scenes like that that were happening. There were sort of things going on. I was absolutely petrified when they brought me back for this. And it is just really weird how the church teaches on the end times. The answer the church does is sort of, it either tells you something like, you know, well, you know, don't worry about that. Or it gets so obsessed it makes films about lawnmowers missing. And over the years, it has done this time and time again. I, I found out these things about who do you think the Antichrist really is? Because we know that. These are some of the the church's efforts at the end times Antichrist. They're not in any order. Uh, Pol Pot. Well, we're still here. Adolf Hitler, still here. Idi Amin, still here. Osama Bin Laden, still here. Just for you in the UK. Tony Blair, you're all still here. Uh, Just in case you're worried whether you'll become king or not. Prince Charles, you're all still here. Peter the Great in Russia, the Pope, all sorts. (laughs) Sigmund Freud, uh, he was, you're all still here. Charles Darwin, you're all still here. 
please, can I just suggest as a church that we as Gateway Church do not do the next one, okay? Because if you put these sort of things, do you know how this makes us look, folks? That we have predicted publicly that this is the Antichrist, and then we say, come and join our church. Come and be a part of our faith. And they'll say to us, oh, what do you think about Pol Pot then? Well, I mean, sometimes we are just stupid, aren't we? So there you go. Actually, the list is bigger. One, just for fun, Google who, are, who is the Antichrist. Just for fun. There is pages on it. Oh, dear. And I've got a virus. It's <laughs> <laughs> just not helping. I had to spy bot after that. What's this? It's the end times. <laughs> the Lord's returning. Oh, Lord, please receive me into it. was a bit. No, it's only a virus. I'm all right. Okay. And Phil will say, it never happens on Apple. No. Uh, yeah, it's because you never look at the end times. Verse 6, Luke 21. Uh, Jesus predicts the demolishing of Jerusalem. He says, uh, not one stone will be left upon another and prompts his disciples to ask in verse 7 of Luke 21 about the signs. And he says, these are the things that would happen. And you know these things. So uh, he, he, he says these things. So uh, and Jesus uh, takes them on, and he tries to explain the, uh, the end time process. Verse 9, Luke 21. And when you hear of wars and tumults, or tumults, or whatever, or termites, Do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. It's interesting, isn't it, how we forget the little phrase. Notice Jesus is very careful to say about these signs, wars, tumults are not immediately followed by the end. There seems to be an undefined space of time. He's avoiding locking himself into the time frame. Then verse 10 and 11, he says to them, Nation will rise upon nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes. There will be various places where you'll get famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from the heavens. Oh, Lord, have I got to go there? Uh, he, He mentions wars again and earthquakes and famines. How many of us? Even again, it is true that as soon as the earthquake happened in Japan, what did the church do? The church said, this is the end. You think, okay, famines, we've done this all the time. Terrors, it'd be interesting just you theologians to ask yourself, well, what's that then? I don't know. Uh, Some say uh, the end will be cataclysmic signs in the sky. Uh, Many have tried to say that the end will be like a comet hitting us. That's really fantastic to look forward to then, isn't it? Most comets hit America anyway, so we're all right. I've seen that in the films. (laughs) Usually New York. (laughs) So if you're American, worry. If you're in the UK, you are safe. Okay. So then uh, verse 12, he says something important again about the timing. He says, looking back on wars and upheavals and famines and earthquakes, he actually says, But before all this, 
they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, deliver you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Notice again, there's the use of the word before. So now we have another uh, indefinite space of time that's implied. First, there's persecution, and Peter and the disciples would experience that. Then there's wars and famines and earthquakes, and then there's an end, and there seems to be a, an, a, an, a set of time that's mentioned. Then Jesus adds some more things. Verse 20, he says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that the desolation has come near. And all the Christians, uh, when they went out on the crusades and the Muslim armies moved into Jerusalem, led by Sadalin, Sadalin, no, that's what you paint stuff with, Saladin, (laughs) attacked by a wood preservative. (laughs) I wouldn't like to have said that to him at his face, would you? He's just a wood preservative (laughs) with a big sword. Anyway, when he attacked... Everybody just said, this is the end times again. This is it. We're in again. How many times have we done this, folks? It just drives you mad. And and trying to just edit out the tape, the fact that I mentioned a wood preservative, verse 24, they will fall at the edge, uh, by the edge of the sword. They will be led captives amongst the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So there's destruction in Jerusalem, part of what's coming to the end. And after that, there's a period of time, unspecified length is to be fulfilled. Again, Jesus describes it as the time of the Gentiles. How long is the time of the Gentiles? You've got it. Okay. So, too many periods of two undefined times for me, actually. That's what I think about it. And, And that's the problem. The problem is for the Christian church is to do with all these gaps that appear. How long are these gaps? Actually, <laughs> that's, the, that's the difficulty. Because we want to know what Jesus would not tell his disciples and actually did not know himself. Matthew 24 tells us that only the Father knows. We do get ourselves into a real state about these things. So the application is this. The main point of the end times teaching is not what is going to carry on, but what you are supposed to do whilst these things are going on. That's the problem. The issue is not Jerusalem. The issue is not the times of the Gentiles. The issue is not a war or a famine. We know all those sort of things. The issue is whilst those things are going on, what should you be doing? It goes back to the thing with Peter and the Great Commission. It goes back to what Peter's saying and that sort of stuff. Why are we worrying about these things when you know what you should be doing? And one of the things you should be doing is not being fascinated with these things. But... Because you're curious and nosy, let's carry on a bit. <laughs> right, Peter wrote, Peter wrote in 1 Peter, Jerus- uh, when Peter wrote 1 Peter, Jerusalem had not been destroyed yet. He died at around uh, AD 65 and Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. So it's hard for me to agree with the interpretation that what Peter meant in 1 Peter 4, 7, the end time, the end of all things has happened, that Jesus would return any moment. Because he couldn't, he knew. 
Jerusalem is still there, standing, sort of proud. Jesus had said that it would be destroyed first and then there would be this undefined time of the Gentiles that would elapse. So we can dismiss that. Besides that, besides the destruction of Jerusalem, Jesus also said that world evangelization would take place before the end of the world. Matthew 24, verse 14. The gospel of this kingdom must be first preached into the entire world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Well, Peter knew that the story had begun. The story had begun. And maybe, we'll come back to that as an interpretation, that was one of the things that was exciting him in regard to writing this, that actually he was watching nation after nation uh, uh, sort of almost fall to our great God as the Apostle Paul and the Apostles went out. So Peter can't have believed that Jesus would return any minute uh, either. So not only that, Jesus had actually told Peter what would happen in his old age, which is really nice to know. I don't know whether you've uh, clocked this one yet, but actually Jesus did. In In John 21, 18, Jesus said, When you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you, uh, bring you where you do not wish to go. Wow. So he already knew that he would get old and he already knew that he would be frail and he already knew he would be taken to places that he did not want to go. So Peter can't have believed that Jesus would return any minute during his middle-aged years. He was still going exactly where he wanted to go. The Lord had told him not only how, how he would be in his old age, but how he would die. So he knew that. He knew that the end couldn't be near because he told that. And Paul later on actually warns uh, about um, the view that Jesus might have returned in those days at any moment into the Thessalonians. He says, the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is revealed to Thessalonians 2 verse 3, which is quite clearly Tony Blair. So, just edit that one out. So, he explicitly checks the spread of the view that the day of the Lord has come. So, the answer is, what, what was Peter saying before we get to some application? This is my interpretation. This is my, my best guess. Because what I'm trying to do with this is trying to think, as it were, through the eyes of Peter in the time that Peter was in. So, and that's the best way that we can do it. The best way that we can do it is not trying to look at it from our perspective back We have to try and look at it from what Peter was facing at the time. So this is my suggestion um, in regard to the end of the uh, the end of all things as it happened. All around them there was intensifying persecution, and the Lord said that there would be. So that's one part. They were being persecuted. The church was being persecuted. There were rumours of wars. They knew that. In fact, there's been no time in the world history when there hasn't been rumours of wars. So he knew that there were wars that were going on. He knew that the horizon was dark for Israel. He knew that the judgment on Jerusalem was near. Jerusalem hadn't collapsed, 
but he could sense because he was living in an environment where he knew that this was an issue for Jerusalem. That Jerusalem uh, might fall at any minute. But having said that, he was watching something that perhaps some of us are yet to experience. He had been through Pentecost. He had seen, uh, he had seen the Holy Spirit being poured out on person representing nation after nation after nation. He was watching his own ministry where he seemed to be able to go into situations, preach the gospel with great authority, see great signs and wonders. This is the guy that understood that prison doors just open. This, is what, this was his gospel. So this is what he knew. Not only that, his mate, Paul, was planting churches all over the place. He was, the man had gone loony in regard to planting churches. He had gone through the major cities of Galatia in a matter of months and people were responding. It was churches like you had never seen it before. He'd completed uh, the frontier work in Jerusalem. He was on his way, according to uh, Romans 15, to Spain. Hundreds in Peter's day, hundreds of thousands of people were becoming Christians. They were forming and going to the unreached. So in regard to that text, Peter could actually say to it, it could happen tomorrow because the speed of what it was going in that time would have been phenomenal. And I don't know how big his world was, but if you just look at those things, including Pentecost, and if you look at the success of, the, of Paul, and if you looked at the, the, the persecution, and if you look at the evangelism, and if you look at God's power, isn't it not natural that he would say that the end is near? Every evidence of all around him, even in terms of a period of the Gentiles, the Gentiles were now being saved in their masses. Everything around him was appearing in intensity. So he's saying, the end's near. Now, I'm, not, I'm going to stand with him. I'm not predicting when it will happen. I'm just sort of saying that I think you can see where he's coming from when he's saying these things, that how he's motivated. But what I would like to suggest to you is this, that he actually doesn't stop there. He does do that thing, therefore. And he says, therefore, beings that it's like this, persecution, Jerusalem is under threat, wars, uh, the gospel is going out, the Gentiles are being reached, the power of God is being manifest. He then says, therefore, therefore. You see, that stuff isn't just it. Therefore, then he goes in our text, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, uh, since love covers a multitude of, of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And that's exactly the way that I believe that we as a church should deal with the coming of the Lord. That we should be people 
who are firstly going to be committed to the ends of the earth. Starting in our Jerusalem, we should be people in the end times that are denoted by our prayer. Just look, we should be people that say, look, the end is near. Therefore, you know, don't dilly-dally and mess around with sin. The world's coming to an end, folks. You know, what are you doing sinning? The world's coming to an end. You know, what, what on earth is that? Look, the judge is at the door. Don't, don't be a fool. Don't do that. And in the remaining time, spend it well. Pray. Go to the ends of the earth. Love. Be hospitable. Don't grumble. The end's near. Use your gift. The end's near. Serve. The end's near. Worship. These things mark us out as end times people. Our books on the end times do not. These things mark us out. They show us. They show the world that we are people who are living as Jesus would return. So, a word for gateway. I don't often do this because I, I, I know that I can prophesy and I know that God has given me that, that sort of gift. I know that I don't do it as much. But actually, when I was preparing this, I was just going to sort of almost finish where we'd got uh, and, and actually felt, I don't know, um, if I said constrained, it's, uh, it's wrong, really. Um, but I, it was something more of, well, I'm just working through Scripture here. And I felt this was for a, a word for us. So I would like you to interpret this almost like uh, prophetic, really, because it was that sense. It was... Anybody knows our house will know where I study. I study up in a, one of our bedrooms and that sort of stuff. And I just had a moment with the Lord, as it were. And I wonder whether I could just share with you some of those moments. One, I, um, I hope that I will get through. Uh, one that affected me quite emotionally, really. And uh, so I'll try and do that one first. Firstly, I want to... I felt that I felt God said to me, "Warn others." And and this that's what weighed heavily. I it was just really that the thousands and tens of thousands of people in North Wales who don't believe that the end of things is at hand. And I just oh, I just it it's, I actually thought it is awful. And I and I don't feel awful about it. And that was what was going on in my mind. I don't feel bad about this. And I know that I should not be motivated by guilt. But I also believe that Peter had in mind urgency when he spoke these words. There was a sense of that. And I have to confess to you before, I am not urgent in preaching to my next door neighbours that the end of the time is near. Now, I know that there's an image in your, ha- in your mind right now about a bloke that walks through the major cities with a placard with saying that the end is nigh. Now, we all think there is a plonker. But to be honest, has he not got a point? Has he not got a point here? And I just felt for myself that I was not urgent about the end times and not feeling an urgency about how that works in regard to my friends and my neighbours. I also felt this, 
that sometimes the church can be so pastoral, so insular, so protective of what it has, so happy amongst that actually we can forget the horror of the end of all things. The end of all things, if you are not a Christian, is horrific. It is great rejoicing for you as a Christian. But if you read about the end times, it is not a great end. And I, am, I confess to you that I am complacent in regard to those things. And I just had to stop and pray and say, Lord, will you stir me? And I'm not stirred at the moment. It's a prayer that I'm praying. Lord, would you stir me to warn as many as I can? Now, I'm using the term warn on purpose. I'm not to you know, share the gospel, the love of Jesus. Uh, you know, I'm not talking about, I'm actually talking about warning people about the end times. I feel that I need to pray, Lord, stir me. Stir me to do this. Now, I don't know whether that's a word for you this morning, but it's a word for me. I don't warn enough. I don't. I live in the pleasures of the day. So that's what I felt. Secondly, that's impressive, isn't it, Rue? I did that. I felt this about love covering sins. And again, I I just felt this emotionally again. Uh, verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of all sins. I just think this, isn't it so easy to spot somebody else's sins? I know that you spot mine very well. In fact, you know, it's interesting that, you know, you are free sometimes and have been free to very clearly tell me what my sins are. It's interesting that he be interesting if I decided that I was going to tell you what your sins are. But you, very, you are very free sometimes in telling me what mine are. I want to thank you for that. It helps me. It doesn't help you. It makes me more sanctified, but it leaves you a little bit more behind. <laughs> Maybe you should invite me to tell you what your sins are, and then you too will be sanctified. <laughs> but, I, but if we're going to demonstrate sacrificial love, it will mean that we're going to have to cover a multitude of sins. What do I mean by this? I think that's a choice. Love says, I'm just going to cover the things about you of which I, in this scripture, could complain or grumble about. In other words, the focus is on the effect of the love that enables fellowship in spite of the sins. Isn't that remarkable that end-time people do not look at each other in the eyes of sins, but look at each other in the eyes of love. That I don't look at Rupert, sorry, you're on the front row, and say that I see his sin first, that I see my love for him first. D- denotes us. Isn't that remarkable? Do, do I grumble about him first, or do I love him first? Now, it's not endorsing uh, Rupert's skeletons in the closet. It's not, in, in, it's not saying I'm going to forget on church discipline if I have to do that. No, those are biblical things. It's saying at least this and probably more that we cover the sin. What does that mean? It means that we give it up, that we bury it. And how do we know that we bury it? It's quite simple, but I'm not talking about it. <laughs> not talking about that bloke, Rupert, again. There's no grumbling. And I think the Lord was ministering to me 
because Callie will tell you that I do grumble just not much but a bit and I, I think you know I've, and if you would, if you look at this haven't you got enough reasons to grumble yes you have there's enough but one of the things that shows that Jesus is returning is that I won't look at you through the eyes of your sin, Steve. I will look at you through the eyes of my love for you. I will cover your sin. Okay? Therefore, don't grumble. It's an end time, people. We don't grumble. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. What is that? Let's explain it. Uh, What is that about? Is this inviting your friends around for a three-course meal and doing it without moaning? No. It isn't. Just so that you know that. Let me try and explain where this had come from. Uh, Welcoming new people or passing people through... Uh, the church family by AD 100 had become a huge issue. And they created a minor law. A minor law. And the minor law went something like this, that you are welcome in our church and we will provide you hospitality, including accommodation and food for three days. After that, you're out. That was the law. That's it. Three days. That's our hospitality and you're out. In fact, if you go into this a little bit de- detail, you'll know that the Apostle Paul stayed um, amongst the churches sometimes for years. And some of the people in those churches felt that the Apostle Paul overstayed his welcome. <laughs> How about that? That's fantastic. Ah. You'd give it up for the Apostle Paul. But no, the church said, no, he's overstayed. So what does that mean? It means then it is not what the hospitality that we're thinking about here is not that. It means it means that it means end time. It means three course meal. Sorry, the end times people will be people that will make other people feel welcome for whatever length of time they are with us, not according to either their ministry, the apostle Paul, their wealth, rich or poor, their culture. That we will be a welcoming people. Now, for us, Gateway Church, we're believing that God will grow us. The people that God will grow us with are not sitting in these chairs right now. Now, when they come, the issue of denoting us as end times people is that they will feel very welcome amongst us. That is it. We must not ever settle for what this is. We must be welcoming for all types. I, I, have, uh, I don't know because I might be dangerous with this, but uh, you know, I, I do have communication sometimes with people via email that would like to come to us. Not telling you that. Uh, Phil sometimes has the privilege of seeing that. Um, I had some interesting ones. Some peop- sometimes people contact me on Facebook. And sometimes I have to admit I've sinned in regard to thinking this. I'm not sure that this is going to be a real blessing. That is not the gift of hospitality that is biblically defined here. The biblically defined hospitality is that everybody is welcome here. And as end times people, that will be how we should be. And that really did concern me. I question this. Is our growth to do with our welcome? 
Are we end times welcoming people? Do people feel at home here? Feel they can come back again? Serve. Another word that I felt just God stir me on. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's steward of God's varied grace. We're nearly through. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit to the common good. We all have a gift. It's there. It's been given not for your ministry. It's not about you. It is always about the common good. You serve and bring the common good. What you can do is that you control whether you use it or not. And that is a choice. That's a choice. I know this might offend some, but some of you this morning came with a gift in the context of worship and you didn't serve other people. It isn't that God hasn't given it one, it's that you chose not to use it. That's why the Bible tells us to stir that amongst us. I don't want to be a church where Chris, Nigel and Callie and Rupert and Fleur bring the only contributions. Why do I not want to do that? Because that is not what it means by common good. Because out there, there are magnificent quality gifts that should come into the body that will bring a common good that I or my wife cannot do. I heard a story the other week of about a guy that was church planting and he did everything. In fact, I think it was said here. In the, in the, no, was it said at home? I think it might have been said at home afterwards. And the, the, the story was that the church, the church grew, the bloke preached, prophesied, led the worship, prayed, did the deliverance, prayed for the healing and whatever. And his wife did exactly the same. If we go down that route, there will not be common good in Gateway Church Wrexham. You have something that I do not, that do not have or possess that brings common good to this church. The reason that, we're, you know, silence is not an option in terms of serving somebody else. Somebody this morning, because you didn't bring, would have gone out missed. God wanted to meet with them. God wanted to bless them. God wanted to encourage them. God wanted to work amongst them. And you sort of said, well, I'm not sure about this. Do you know, I would rather you do it and let's cope with it being wrong than, it, than, it be, than being silent because the common good is at risk here. And I, I, what am I? If I am a shepherd, I am shepherd of the flock. And I want the flock to be jumping like lambs. That's what I would really like. And it says here in the Bible, we are stewards of a gift. The interesting thing about steward when it's mentioned in the Bible is that it's a person in the household who is responsible for managing the household's property, family, provisions, slaves, manager. I don't know whether you've thought about that in terms of what your gift does. It manages the property, the provisions, the slaves, the laborers. The, the idea is, the, is that is what it does. You're a steward of it. And God has given it you so that the household of God can be run well. And when you don't do it and I don't do it, it's not, de- it's not as we should be. So end times people, we need to be serving and using our gifting. And finally, worship. 
I'd like to stay with this, but I, I have to do this one because if I don't put this in, Phil Harmon will ring me up. But just so that you know, it's in Scripture. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. End times people glorify Jesus. That is it. That is it. How do you know that you're amongst end times people? They whoopee about Jesus. They're not solemn. They glorify. They bring glory to him. Bring adoration to him. That's the wonderful thing. And this here is a doxology. If you've been in our, our, our D-side group, you know everything about doxologies. Because we actually did one the other week, uh, the other month now as, um, as an icebreaker. We had to write a doxology, come back in and sing it. So if you'd like a great icebreaker and also to have your cell group reduce in numbers, just write this. You must bring your doxology and sing it. But we had a great time because it's interesting when you let people go. What is in the heart of people? There's, there's bucket loads in the heart of people about Jesus. And it just says, look, we bring glory to Jesus. And we should be, we, you should break open gateway people and you should, there should be like the Blackpool Rock and you should break it open. They glorify Jesus. Amen. Do I want to be known for church planting in Deeside? Well, be great. Do I want to be known for church planting in the unknown place that we can't mention until the summer? It would be great. But actually, I would stuff all of those things for a bunch of people that are known as glorifying Jesus people. That would be what I would love. You know, do I want that little tick, Nigel Lloyd, you know, already planted two churches, now planting the great little ticks and all that sort of stuff. My CV will, do you know, what I want on my CV is my bunch glorified Jesus. That's what I want more than anything else. And if you look at Peter, you look at the end times, you realize that Peter was living in this tension, persecution, all that sort of stuff. And suddenly he goes bonkers. Because he's doing this and he just sort of says, oh, to him be glory for dominion forever and ever. Amen. He just goes off on one. It's just how it happens. He's just writing this letter. And if you go through, you find this thing all over the t- all over it. In the midst of all this, you get Paul, Romans 16, verse 25, sort of writing this massive thing to the Romans. Very heavy. Lots of grace and sin and Roman church. Very serious. Suddenly, he's writing... To the only wise God be glory forever throughout Jesus, uh, through Jesus Christ. Amen. And probably if you read it, think, what, what, what's he doing? He's breaking out. He's, just, he's writing a letter. He's breaking out. He writes to the Ephesians chapter 3 verse 21. Breaks out. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. He's writing. Serious letter. Lots to say. Wives, husbands, slaves. To him be glory. What about the apostles? Just forget the apostles. To him be glory. What about the prophets? Oh, forget the prophets. To him be glory. And I don't know whether, you, that's, you know, whether that's caught you. You know, well, what about the apostles? This theological law? Oh no, to him be glory. And he goes through, then he, he goes through to Philippians. He does it again. To our God and Father, the Lord Jesus, forever and ever. Amen. And you think, get on with writing the letter, man. And he does it again. Jude, to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before now and evermore. Amen. 
And you find this in the midst of life, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of their personal care for the churches, in the midst of persecution, they just go and doxology. They just do it. They burst out all the time. And what are they doing? They say the most important thing in all this is him receiving glory. To God be the glory. And it's just wonderful, isn't it? I want to say to you this. I know that you should be all of those things. But come on, as end times people, can we agree to be doxology people? Amen? Amen. Amen.